Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics Podcast for the Savage Critics website. Our second and final installment of episode 19 is a giant holiday gift bag of a podcast as Graham McMillan and I answer questions from friends and listeners on Twitter about topics such as our favorite editors, comics we were embarrassed to read, our favorite Christmas comics, the $2.99 pricing wars, the first five pages of Graham's Jack Kirby Santa comic, Carol Ferris, and much, much, and believe me, not exaggerating here, much more, in a podcast that falls just shy of two hours. You've probably always wondered where Graham and I fell on that whole Spider-Man threat or menace issue. Now's your chance to find out. Thanks for listening, we hope you enjoy, and happy holidays. Hello. Ah, there we go. <laughs> it was like... I, I've been trying to do it for longer, and then I was like, I will laugh if I keep... <laughs> <laughs> you are a terrible, terrible prankster. Terrible. I, prankster. I, that's me. I'm a prankster. I fight the flash and fly around on special shoes. Oh no, that's a trickster. Prankster's a Superman guy, isn't he? I've got a bad mustache and a bow tie. Oh yeah, you kind of look like a a giant, um, like a ventriloquist dummy with a bow tie. In fact, now that I think about it, the prankster really looks like eighty <laughs> percent of like- my. You look like a giant ventriloquist dummy with a bow tie, but I can't think of the comparison with the comic character. <laughs> no, the comparison, that is the comic book character. I was just realizing he also sort of faintly resembles most of the conservative commentators on television, too, in a way. Like, hmm. Oh, like there's a, a pitch that someone has to DC. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the prankster as Rush Limbaugh. That'd be... Uh... That'd be great. The, the prankster versus Glenn Beck. <laughs> Glenn Beck could like have another rally, and he'd be like, "I need someone to organize it. Can you organize it, Oswald P. Whatever the prankster's last name is? Because he is an Oswald, right? Am is I he? making this up? Uh, no, I'm I pretty sure. probably are. I, I, you're well on top of it. He's another one. Like on top of the the penguin, we also have. See, now we're both typing it. Prankster. Exactly. No. Prankster. Prankster's Oswald Loomis. God. Damn it, how did I stupid Wikipedia and its disambiguation? I would have gotten there. Also, also, it has to be said, um, the prankster, uh, his current incarnation on the Wikipedia page, looks not unlike James Simon of Isotope. I don't know if that's intentional or not. Yeah, you know, you're kind of right, actually. It just needs slightly <laughs> taller different. hair. Yeah. Hmm. That's very good. If you scroll down, Jeff, and everyone else who's just got the Wikipedia page to go along with Jeff and I, You'll see um, the old scary prankster destroyed by John Byrne. Uh, yeah, that's the guy, which is very based on the the design of the. Um, wow, this Bruce Tim prankster is like really they went with the the, the it's kind, it's kind god of awesome. or something. Yeah, I'm kind of like, huh, loincloth to like you know checkered suit. It's quite a jump. Yeah, the scary John Byrne version is very close, as I recall, to the original. Seagull and Sakella creation from August 1942. <clears throat> I, I, yeah, because you knew that by heart. Of I was not I reading it from slightly above the image on the Wikipedia page. No, of course not. That is ridiculous. You're a big fan of John Sakella, aren't you? How dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you want to answer some questions? Absolutely. Okay, first question. <laughs> oh, I, I should say, for all this... And the questions came in on Twitter. And I realized, uh, actually, because someone called Ridgely Shanks 
started twittering me about uh, something we said in the podcast, and I didn't understand what she was talking about for first like first time I read it. Dude, that sounds uh, awesome! I didn't hear any of this. I I realized that um, we've never given our Twitter names out on the podcast, so people who are at us through iTunes and don't know us from Savage Critics or anything else won't be able to like ask us these questions on Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So Jeff, what is your Twitter name? Uh, you can find me under um, uh, Lazy Bastard, L A Z Y B A S T I D, uh, and you, Graham. Uh, I am Graham M, but the spelling of Graham is very particularly um, Scottish, and so it's G R A E M E, and then add an M on there, and you'll find me on Twitter. That's... And then you can, you too, can ask us questions, uh, like like the Ransley Shanks. Uh, they're, they're, I've given her a whole new name The Ridgely Chance um, I, Her name is just Ridgely Chance And hi, finally Hi, thanks for um, talking to me yesterday on Twitter Even though at first I, I had no idea what you were talking about She, What she was saying I should point out uh, She was disagreeing with me That um, Debbie Keeper's art was not sexy ah. uh, And in fact she told me that uh, And I quote Fuzzy jagged expressionism is fucking hot Which is <laughs> Honestly, like, when you don't know what, you're, what the conversation's about, it's just like, okay, <laughs> I'm not sure what you're talking about. Uh, she also managed to tell me that um, her superpower is the ability to identify what parts of the picture interest the artist most. With, as we said, fairly compelling evidence uh, that that superpower didn't actually exist. Um, wow. So, yes. Richard Shantz, you go. I, I'm. Uh, thank you for saying hello, and I hope more people say hello to Twitter now. Yes, uh, and actually, let me just flip that script a very wee bit there and um, say that for those of you who are listening to us and like the podcast, we started off with a very strong, encouraging group of reviews on on iTunes, which uh, warmed my heart considerably, and we haven't had anything for a couple of months. So if you like the (laughs) podcast... Please, by and all please, means. Only if you like the podcast. You yeah, don't no, want any yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, ideally, if you would like to stroke my fragile ego, uh, please go on iTunes and give us a, a great review. But honestly, any review whatsoever. I think it's just great to have feedback so that we know that, um, you know, that there's other people listening than, than the, the five or six people who, who jump in and, and tell us so over on the Savage Critic website, which I also I, appreciate. I thought, Don't get me wrong. I was going to say, I thought you were going to say, if people who are listening to us have never read the Savage Critics, that's where we came from. Yeah. Uh, which is savagecritic.com. Yes. And you should go and read that because I write reviews and Jeff writes reviews on there as well. Although not a recently. Yeah, I saw that on your Twitter. Was there somebody who actually did not know that? I don't know. Uh, Sonia, who I know in San Francisco, asked ah. for a link. Um, and I don't know if she meant specifically to that podcast or whether she'd never heard the podcast. Uh, and so I, I, gave, I told her to look for us on iTunes. Yes. Yeah, look for us on iTunes. Um, you know, we really have to – we have to – I've got to do some sort of behind-the-scenes website pruning because – there's a lot of stuff that I go to look for in our older links, and they've kind of have broken or disappeared. Like, I don't know if you realize that, but, like, some of our older, older reviews on the website I don't think are accessible because the, the links, even the links in Google don't seem to necessarily find them as far as I can tell. That'll be because we switched to WordPress and screwed everything up. Yeah, I think that's right. So I have to figure out some way to sort of help get that 
workable again, I think. Because it would be nice. Like, there was something the other day where I was like, huh, I wonder what so-and-so said about, well, I'll never know now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One day I might find out with a very, very, very good Google search. Well, it, which reminds me, I've, I've often thought about the idea that we should try doing some sort of, uh, you know, like a print-on-demand version of everybody's reviews. I thought that would be kind of fun. I don't know if anyone would actually buy it, but I think it would be kind of cool to put together. So, Hello, Okay. <laughs> you I were know, so I, quiet. I'm like, that I, is a I, terrible I, idea, apparently. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd rather not talk about that, Jeff. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, yes, so questions. Yeah, so, sorry, yeah, now that we've done all the station ID and stuff, let's let's go into the questions. First question comes from David's Daw, who very simply asks, and this might be, no offense to everyone else, my favorite question, in particular because he did it like one minute or so after I asked, asked for questions in the first place, Spider-Man, the Dread for Menace. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with Menace, you? Uh, I'm gonna go with Menace. I wouldn't say he's actively threatening. Yeah, uh, I will say I will say Dan Slott's current Spider-Man thing going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to say threat rather than menace. Yeah, did you read Big Big Time? Have you read his two issues? Uh, no, not yet. Yeah, see, I, I'm I'm not on board with what he's doing. Mm. That's not true. I'm on board enough to read, but uh, almost every change she's done, yeah, I've not. I've not enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, kind, of, kind of got that feeling a little bit from your your review of the big old finale, actually. Well, it, it's so basically, dance lot takes over, and honestly, he's kind of like, you know, all that stuff I've been doing with all these other guys for three years. Fuck it. <laughs> Like, you know, you know, we closed down the Daily, Daily Bugle. Daily Bugle's back open. You know how we wrote out, like, J. Jonah Jameson's wife? She's back in it. Also, while I'm at it, here's John Jameson back. Here's the Hobgoblin. Mm. Uh, Peter Parker's got a job. And all this, I swear to God, happens in one issue. Ooh. So ouch. literally, it's like 30 pages or so where every second page is. Here's the status quo I'm putting back. Here's the status quo I'm putting back. Here's the status quo I'm putting back. Here's my new status quo. Which is kind of shit. Like it's, <laughs> his new his new status quo is Peter Parker is a scientific genius and has been hired by a think tank of scientific geniuses. Mm. Yeah, that's Which, not going to be the status quo for long. That's just Spider Man fights evil geniuses. Like what? Like six months down the line? Nine months down the line? I I don't know, but like it's just it's it's completely not interesting to me. Hmm. Uh, and I I just. Like, I know, I, I, on one hand, like, I kind of like that he's like, you know, I'm getting to write the Spider-Man I clearly wanted to for years. Sure. But on the other hand, because I listened to the um, Albert Bloom interview with him, and mm-hmm. he said, you know, some of these are ideas I've had that were kept being shut down during Brand New Day. And I can see why they kept being shut down. Right. You know, I just, it's, it's not... It's not floating my boat. And if he has a, if he has a, a massive, like, swerve in place or something that's going to make me go ooh that's great then I hope it's better than his I can't are you going to read Spider-Man can I spoil Spider-Man for you sure I don't know uh, about our poor listeners but you know listeners be prepared to start going blah 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 blah, blah right around now so yes uh, in 649 which came out last week mm-hmm. um, the Hobgoblin comes back and is killed off by Ben Urich's son who becomes the new Hobgoblin 
<laughs> What's and like, really? And also, like, you know, the other thing he did is um, he's de-venomed the current Venom who used to be the Scorpion to make right. him the Scorpion again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's quite clear that he's going to make John Jameson into the new Venom. What? Really? Oh. Well, the, the only thing I have to support this is he's making comments, like he's slotted some publicly making comments online of like, you won't believe who this new Venom is. He's not going to be what you expect. And in the story, you've got like the American military being like, we've got a use for Venom. And then mm. it'll cut to like John Jameson being like, I'm the test pilot for everything the US military comes up with. And it's like, you know, Short of actually saying, and I'm going to be the test pilot for Venom. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the most unsubtle foreshadowing I can imagine. Huh. Wow. So, Interesting. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, you say that, but I'm not interested. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, interesting as in like, yeah, that just sounds, I mean, there's a couple of choices. I kind of think bringing back the Hobgoblin is, is kind of a good idea. I have to tell you the other day, one of the things that I was thinking that kind of made the Hobgoblin work is that one of the early um, tropes from the Spider-Man stories that I kind of dug, that I realize has always been there, is the who is the secret villain in Peter Parker's midst, you know? Yes. They, they did that with the Enforcer, they did it with the Jackal, and they did it with the Hobgoblin for a very long chunk of time. It's kind of a neat idea, you know? I, I love the original Hobgoblin um, storyline, and also mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest, I prefer the Hobgoblin to Green Goblin as a visual. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm actually going to agree with you on that. That I I think that uh, the Hobgoblin looks it's it's just a number of like they took the basic design, they went okay, here's some of the stuff that's cool about it, and let's change it so it looks more menacing. Because Steve Ditko does some awesome stuff. But I don't think, you know, his visual sense of things, like the whole, like, green, purple, and merry, that's danger. You know what I mean? Like, the Hopgoblin looked like a creepy motherfucker and still colorful at the same time. So Yeah, exactly. I, I, I prefer the Hopgoblin as a visual character than I do the Green Goblin. So I'm glad he's back. It's just I don't, I'm not in the least bit interested in it's a new Hobgoblin who's the son of, you know, Peter's boss who right. used to be a superhero and for no reason whatsoever is now a supervillain. Well, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, no, no, eh. I agree. I, and I can, it's so funny because I'm like, yeah, I really want that secret traitor in the midst idea. But I'm like, ew, really? Like Ben Yurik's son? Like it's better when it's a mystery for the reader. Well, so Yeah, so the other thing is like, you know, who really cares about Ben Yurik's son? I didn't even know he had a son. I have to admit it. He, I'm totally he, his, like. His son. Well, here, here's the thing. Again, his son is brought in like the issue before and that's his first issue for the first time in a long time, because his son was the superhero Green Goblin from the early 90s. Oh, when he had his own series that was kind yep. of somewhat like yep. The Mask or something? Yes. Oh, yes. really? Wow. They they chose that. That was not a sensible choice. Uh, boy. All right. Ben Yurik's son. Wow. I didn't know that character existed until five minutes ago. Speaking of which... Who's Phil, by the way? Phil Yurik. Phil Yurik. Oh. Is it Ulrich or Ulrich? Is it not? Is it's it not probably Ulrich? Ulrich. I'm sure. I, I, as a comic book fan, as a lifelong comic book fan, my first instinct is to mispronounce everything. You know? No, like, you're right. It's Ulrich. I've just looked it up. Is it? Yeah, you're right. Holy shit! Uh, that's shocking. All right. <laughs> Submariner. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I yeah. totally screwed that up. I, I actually I think I said submariner. I'm sure I was submariner forever. I'm sure I was magneto I, I was, rather I was than submar- magneto. I was submariner for for the majority of my childhood. 
Yeah. Yeah, me too. If you if you're willing to count your childhood into your mid twenties, uh, which I am, so <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Okay, before we get back to the next question, um, let me ask you something. Jonathan yeah. Hickman's Fantastic Four storyline is it definitively announced who's going to bite it yet? No, okay. they they have very purposely not definitively announced who's going to bite it yet. I have. I'm also not reading it, so who's going to die? Here's my theory. My okay. theory, because they're like they're like one of you know that that somebody's going to die, that the the team's going to break apart. It's going to be recalled three or something like that, or no, the storyline's called three. Countdown to three, and then there's going to be a, a relaunch and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, all all they've said is the Fantastic Four books getting cancelled, which right. you know, hey, that's going to stick. Right, exactly. Well, and I think they even said it was going to be relaunching there. So my theory is, and I don't think that this is necessarily what's going to happen, but I think it's not a bad idea, is that um, that you ha- that the person who's going to die is going to be uh, Valeria, um, the Reed Richards' daughter, uh, Reed and Sue's daughter, and so the idea either so. The three refers to Reed and Sue and Franklin, their surviving kid. Uh, and it's going to try and like go back to kind of that old classic, like all the way back in Fantastic Four, where Franklin ended up in like a super powered coma because of Reed's oversight. And Sue let, leaves him and he's broken and it looks like the you know they're tottering on the edge of divorce and the Fantastic Four is completely dissembled as a result of it. Mm-hmm. That would be my theory: is that they're going to try if, and redo that. If that is true, uh, I predict uproar on the internet. Um, well, in, in part because I'm pretty sure they've said definitively that it is going to be a member of the team who dies. <sighs> All right. Well, in that uh, case, and also because I would really hope they are going to do something more than. Than a rehash from like yeah, 25 than, than, years than ago. Yeah, a rehash of what Roy Thomas was doing like in 1970, whatever. <clears throat> Jerry Conway, my friend. Jerry What's Conway. Jerry Con- yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you for the way you said that as well. <laughs> uh, Jerry Conway, my friend. <laughs> I think you'll find it's Jerry Conway. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> This is just because I'm bitter because it's such a great idea. It's not, it's, I don't know if it's that great an idea, but I do remember that there, you know, that the, that the Fantastic Four by being, you know, the first family of superheroes, like having their marriage kind of sort of fall apart. Like Jerry Conway was producing some pretty traumatic books well, Jerry, between that Jerry and Gwen Stacy. Yeah, great stuff back then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, as a kid, I technically was not the intended audience for it. So it kind of fucked me up, but at the same time, it was incredibly addictive, and Lord knows you don't really have that problem now, you know, sort of, in, ter- in the chance of like, yeah, some eight-year-old's going to pick up Jonathan Hickman's FF and be freaked out. Uh, I-, I think that, you know, it, weirdly enough, it almost didn't get properly explored for long enough, you know? It it came, it kind of went relatively quickly, as I recall, uh, and it was incredibly disturbing at the time, but now it, I think, as everyone's a little older and wiser, it could probably pay some really interesting dividends. I want to say that it went on for longer than you think. I remember reading it recently for the first time in the Essentials. 
collection. Yeah, it probably, I mean, it pretty much wraps up by issue 150. And I think it starts, I want to say, around issue 129 or 128 but or that's, so. That's like a year. That, that's it's more, more than it's a year. Clo- it's yeah, close it's, to two it's years. To two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which, um, which is pretty long. Yeah. Especially no. for then. Yeah, exactly. For then, it's like huge, huge. Um, so. I, I, I would. Who I, by the way, think it's going to be either Reed Richards and he's going to be replaced by another Reed Richards, or it's going to be uh, Sue Storm. That's a nice hook, actually. The Reed Richards replaced by another Reed Richards is is kind of a good idea. But I also, I the reason I think that won't be what's happened is Reed Richards has also, quote-unquote, died in Fantastic Four for a long time before in the 90s. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think during, I want to say Tom DeFalco's run, but maybe it, it was... was Tom DeFalco's run. Yeah. And, yeah. No, it was DeFalco, and he was replaced by Doctor Doom for a bit, wasn't he? Yeah, for a little bit, yeah, which was kind of an interesting little uh, touch. Um, yeah, the whole... Well, that's why I... That's sort of, in a way, why I kind of think the whole, like, we're going to kill one of the team is, like really kind of a bad idea. Like, if you kill Reed Richards, at least with your sort of universe of infinite reads, you kind of have a weird replacement out, you know, sort of. Um, but killing Sue seems dumb. Killing Ben seems like a really bad choice. And Johnny, I don't know. You know? I mean, I can almost see it being... It's kind of, it's kind of sad that both of us are like, Johnny, I don't care if someone kills him. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, has anyone ever really liked him? And again, you kind of have that thing of like, you could replace him with the original Human Torch. You could replace yeah, well, that, him with the new all, Human Torch. But also, I think if it is Johnny, that would be... Um, like, I feel Johnny doesn't actually really have a role within the family to the same extent that Reed, Sue, and Ben do. Well, Do you know what I mean? Like Johnny, Johnny, but Johnny's original role was to be the kid, and he's right. been replaced by real kids. Right, right. Well, but but I, I, I feel like you wouldn't really miss him in the series. No, I totally under I I totally get where you're at because of course I was like, eh, Johnny. But I mean, there is I'm sure there's a lot of people I'm not you know presumably uh, Johnny Storm fans who would point out that his clowning around with. Ben is kind of an essential component of a Fantastic Four mix. Like, getting rid of that or changing that would be kind of a weird change. Um, And also, uh, weirdly enough, Johnny Storm is one of those guys who I enjoy reading outside his own title. You know? Like, his stuff in Spider-Man, not that that seems to be happening as much anymore outside of the Ultimate Universe... Uh, oh, don't worry. That that will be happening now that Dan Slott's back in charge. Exactly. So No, I'm I'm serious. Like, no, 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 no. I know. He's already had the Fantastic Four in this first issue. So. Yeah, I and I'm sure he'll bring back the torch because I he you know, he I thought he handled them well, but it's obvious that he has a lot of affection for that. So Yeah. So I don't know. I mean it seems you know, frankly when I read it all, I was the initial uh Tom Brevoort Kirkman thing hickman thing i was originally just kind of like had to you know walk away from the computer for a little bit just because i found it like really unoriginal in a way that that people are like the the same way when people were talking about the death of spider-man you know bendis's death of spider-man like we're gonna do something that's never been done before and i'm like dude that means one thing basically uh and Unless you're absolutely, totally fooling yourself, you know? Because I kind of feel but, okay, like... Okay, what, what does that mean? Right. What does no, it mean? For, oh, for no, me, I think... Mean, yeah, that means one thing. That, mean, mean? that means you actually permanently kill the character, you know? You see, 
I was listening to the Newsrama podcast the other day, and they made. I, you can laugh all you want, um, and they made a relatively good point, which is the only way you can do that is if you're killing the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. You can't have an awesome universe without Ultimate Spider-Man because it is the it is the one title that comes out on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I kind of felt the same way. I mean, I'm not saying that this is like, and I wouldn't really want that either, even though I I have jumped off the book a long time ago. So part of me is like, I, but any other, what's that? I think you're missing out. I, I really, really like Ultimate Spider-Man. I know. Days. I know. You have indeed said. You have indeed said. Um, and it's it's something, and that's it. I kind of hold out the thought of, well, maybe someday I'll find an arc to jump back on, on blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, I mean, you know, short of when they say, like, that we're doing something that has never been done before, I'm kind of like we're used to a lot of different, you know, it's like we've had fake deaths of the character, imaginary deaths of, of, of a main character. We've had actual honest to God deaths of the title character (laughs) followed by resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Death deaths, fake deaths, little deaths. We've had them all. Now. I I don't think we've ever had a little death of Spider-Man. Well, I, I, as I recall, like not, uh, not on panel. No, no, no. (laughs) Okay. But off panel, you have to admit that guy got some play. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I meant of the title character. You know, when the, no, no, the title know. character of the book. So, yeah. so I mean, I think the, as I recall, the little deaths of Scarlet Witch miniseries that Steve Englehart did back in '85 upholds what I'm talking about. So. Yeah, but they did change the to Scarlet Witch and the Vision. Yeah. Or which, sorry, the Vision and Scarlet Witch. Vision and which, Scarlet Witch, which is coming out hardcover. <gasps> what? Are you there kidding? A, I'm not, because you know it started with a crossover with West Coast Avengers? Mm-hmm. They're putting out a hardcover of the first, I want to say, 10 issues of West Coast Avengers, including the Vision Scarlet Witch crossover issues. I just wish I knew, do they use dartboards, drunken monkeys? How do they make <laughs> their selections for what goes into hardcover and hits the printing press? I, I, mean, I, I don't know, and when it, it's this, I don't care. Yeah, exactly. Well, have you read the Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries? No. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm looking forward to it because it's right in my sweet spot of Englehart. That's Englehart dealing with the marriage between the Vision and Scarlet Witch. Two characters he was always interested in, and to my mind, he never wrote anything less than creepily, so... <laughs> I actually like them in a, you know, the Vision, the Vision actually was, at the time, he's basically... The Mr. Spock of the Marvel Universe. Yes, you know. Yes, and that worked kind of perfectly. The thing that and, was, and it was great because he'd always be like, like she'd always have, you know, she'd get upset about something, and he'd be like, Wanda, I, I, and she stormed out the door and slammed the door. I loved those scenes. Yeah, me too. The problem with the the Vision and Scarlet Witch is Englehart, God bless him, kept believing in this. He he, he was like, okay, I'm going to take this. Progress, take this idea and you just keep progressing with it. So you've got like, you know, like the vision walking in a towel going, hey, baby, I feel great. I mean, he doesn't quite talk like that, but he's emotionally in touch. He's in touch with his emotions and stuff. And I, I don't Wait, remember see, that, if that... that's going to be so great. And because it's Engelhart in like mid 80s, he's going to say that. And then there'll be like a caption and it's like, this man is perfectly happy with himself. He's at bold peace. <laughs> it was so great because I do you remember that like Engelhart Macy's suddenly started over captioning everything and explaining everything you know the thing that fascinates me about Engelhart is when I started reading both Green Lantern 
and West Coast Avengers in the mid-80s after loving and adoring everything that I wrote, he read in the 70s, like, I remember reading it and quite clearly thinking, like, Jesus fucking Christ, were there always this many exclamation points? Like, and I went back and looked at it, and I'm like, oh my God, everybody did speak in exclamation points, and I never noticed. But, like, those titles, they really were. Yes, Wanda, exclamation point. I'm having a great time, exclamation point. Things but, couldn't be better, option. exclamation like, point. Says the vision. Yes, exactly. Well, which he tends to do even back in the 70s, so I can handle And it's like, because it's still that thing. You know, he's got a modified Stan- Stanleyism, and I could handle... Oh. That at least was old school enough, but when it was, like, the vision in touch with his emotions and being unbelievably chipper... Exclamation point. Our kids mean more to us than anything. Exclamation point. Let's go to Wondergore. Exclamation point. I'm just like, dude, you're completely, what's going on with you? Like, <laughs> It's time for a vision intervention. <laughs> there is VH1's next TV show, and they don't even know it yet. So I'm just uh... going to call it Intervision. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what we would have called our Marvel crossover <laughs> events in the 80s, and we liked it that way. All right, so... You suddenly reminded me, before we get out to the next question, which we really should do, because we've been talking for half an hour. Um, <laughs> and how many questions have we done? And <laughs> <laughs> I came up with the greatest unmade Christmas movie ever yesterday, by accident. Oh, yeah? It's called Son of Claus. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could tell the rest already. Uh, it is the son of Santa Claus who doesn't know he's related to Santa Claus. Okay? Yes. And he's at a corporate job where he is giving in kind, but no one else is. He looks into the family history. He discovers that he is the son of Santa Claus and sets out to show everyone the true meaning of kindness. Wait, who came wait, up with wait. this delightful idea? Uh, Kate and I both. Kate oh. and I came up with the, killer, the killing stroke, which is the character's name. Chris Clawson. <laughs> Seriously, it doesn't get better than that, does it? No, it really does. It's true. It's kind of brilliant. Uh, it sounds suspiciously like the movie Elf turned on its head, but uh, but it sounds that's, great. That's not that's not enough to stop me getting a three picture deal from Paramount on this idea no, alone. That like, is true. On. Yeah, no, dude. Between this and the Kirby Santa thing, I think Christmas brings out the best oh, in your rampant the Kirby creativity. Santa thing. If I had had a more time and b more energy, I actually have no joke written the Santa thing in my head. I know how it starts. <laughs> I can tell you the first five pages. Oh my god! Really? Well, it starts off because I'm going for traditional 1970s Kirby pacing. Yes, with a full page splash. Uh, of a crowd looking shocked. Obviously, there is a woman in the forefront to the le- to the right of the to page. The right. She's got yeah, her yeah, yeah. hands in front of her mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh my God, no choke. <laughs> and there's a man behind her wearing a hat and a suit. And he's like, I can't believe it. Then you turn the page and there's a double page splash. And what it is is Santa has flown in mm-hmm. from, uh, at the end of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, but he's crashed and he's dead. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, I should tell you also, the, the story is called A Nightmare on 34th Street. <laughs> the fourth page, there's four panels on, and it's basically people talking about how this is disaster the Santa's day. <laughs> Stop making me laugh! God damn you! Um... Okay, sorry. <laughs> so good. You've ruined it. <laughs> 
I've ruined it. I see. <laughs> The third part of the first page mm-hmm. is a policeman saying that it's okay because the military has something even better than Santa. <laughs> then the fifth page is another splash. Right. Because that's, that's what Kirby did. Yeah. And, and it's like, like the start is like a very long caption about uh, a professor mm-hmm. who is Professor something Rudolph, because obviously Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Right. And he's been working on creating artificial life, in quotation marks. Uh, and he's, he's invented Santa, S-A-N-N-T-A. And all I've got so far is uh, scented, automated, naughty, schlass, nice. Don't know what the T is. Agent. <laughs> hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Naughty, nice. I don't know. Transportation agent? Transit agent? Uh, termination agent? I don't know. So anyway, Santa is a clone of Santa. The original right. Santa. Who is, um, who obviously has deep philosophical questions about what he is and whether he has a soul. He goes off to fight the guy who killed San, the, the original Santa, who will be, I don't know, the devil or something. He's Jack Kirby. He should be a and, rich, and... steel-handed industrialist. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're yeah. right. You're entirely right. Um, and in the course of the battle, he will uh, discover that he has a protective force shield, which he calls a snow globe. <laughs> and that ends... is great. It ends. Oh, uh, Dr. Rudolph also has a, uh, an assistant called Virginia, by the way. Oh, very nice. Um, and it ends with the villain falling down a mine shaft mm-hmm. and Santa pointing out that uh, it was the only fitting that the ultimate bad person gets the ultimate amount of coal. Oh, for very nice. And very as he nice. flies off, because he has to take care of Santa's, you know, duties, right. and he is the new Santa. Right. Professor Rudolph turns to Virginia and says, yes, Virginia, we should all be glad there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> and that's the end. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not joking. I, literally all of this came to me while I was in the shower the other day. And I was like, holy fuck, I wish I could write this. Oh, man, you totally should. You totally should. Then we just have to nail down an artist and we're set. We're on our way to making millions. I have one humble suggestion, which I is... It's my stroke of genius, so you might be a better... I, I agree. I, it's really not, not, not for me to say. The only thing I would suggest, if not in issue one, then certainly in issue two, um, is the idea that through gem- genetic modification, he gets all the power of his reindeer. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's why he's able to yes, fly on his own. Fly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're right. <laughs> So, and then that way you can occasionally, like, because you know how Kirby always has that weird, like, I'm breaking out the bullshit powers that I never mentioned until now to get him out of this trap? Like, yes. he can do that, like, it looks like I will have to become as invisible as Blitzen, you know, or, <laughs> and that sort of thing, so... Wait, 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 Blitzen is invisible? Is this, like, a new reindeer power? Yeah, I just totally made that up. But, you know, so would Kirby. That's that's my feel. I mean, I, you can research it. I'm sure Donner, Blitzen, I'm sure they all had, like, little special attributes of some sort that no one remembers thanks to Rudolph. So, you know, and then he can break out, like you said, the snow globe's a fucking awesome idea. So, uh, yeah, it's great. See, and this is this is what I do when I am, you know bored yeah this is your downtime <laughs> when, man when my brain can wander i uh-huh. i honestly come up with kirby pastiches for christmas dude and they're awesome i have to say <laughs> uh it's you know and it's kind of that deal of like oh i would love to see santa claus like trying to 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 deliver presents to to 
um, Apocalypse Now, of course, you know? Oh, uh, Ty Templeton did that in a DC Christmas special in, like, 99 or something. Ah. He honestly did uh, Santa Goes to Apocalypse Story, and it was absolutely awesome. That's great. I'll have to hunt it up. As soon as I said it, I'm like, it sounds sort of familiar, but... uh... Okay, dude. So seriously, okay, we, should, we should do more of these sessions. We have to do them because there's like there's like twenty and we've spent half an hour in one. And completely off. Okay, let's go quickly. You ready? Sure. Okay, Secret Reading, who's Sonia, says would like to hear you expand on some of the Twitter comments you made about Fractions Iron Man, which I did last podcast, right? Yeah, some of these people need to play catch up. That's what I have to say. Well, it's also because we haven't put the last podcast up, so they wouldn't have heard it, even oh, if they're yeah. Um, Somebody needs to play catch up, and it is not the listeners. <laughs> the lovely Carla Hoffman says, "How much will the two ninety nine pricing affect sales for DC, and will it affect sales across companies?" I also feel like we've talked about this. I, I thought so too, and I'm like, you know what? People are falling asleep like halfway through our tremendously long podcast. <laughs> exactly. That's why we're speeding through these questions this time. Though. Okay, exactly. quickly, Jeff, answer that question. Uh, Carla. Since you work in a comic book store, uh, which I should give a shout out to, but I don't have the name of it at my fingertips. It's, I believe it's Metro Entertainment. Met- Metro Entertainment? Yeah, uh, it's in Santa Barbara. It's... And anyone who is vaguely in the area, go in and introduce yourself to Carla, who is the greatest person in the world. Absolutely. And also ask her about um, Blood Colossus. <laughs> yes. So, honestly, if you're anywhere, anywhere, if you're passing through Santa Barbara, you have to make a stop at Metro Entertainment. Go and say hello to Carla and ask her about blood classes. And I swear to God, you will not regret it. You will, seriously. Also, if anyone wants to go to Santa Barbara purely to do this, again, you will not regret it. It is maybe one of the highlights of this last year. Yes. Agreed. Carla about blood classes. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it was probably two years ago, wasn't it? Was a year and a half I, ago? Oh, it was yeah, a while. Probably it probably was. Because mm-hmm. I remember we were going out for dinner with you and you weren't around that this time. Mm-hmm. Ago, so. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it would, it would have been last year. One of the highlights of last year, then. Yeah, exactly. Of all okay. years. So, Insidious Mage. <clears throat> wait, I didn't answer the oh, question. Wait, you know, <laughs> it was great, though, Graham. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Jeff, answer these questions quickly. Okay. My personal theory is that the 299 pricing could affect sales for DC uh, if they tie it to um, strong events and uh, decent marketing. I think I think if it's currently DC sort of suffers from a, you know apart from a few certain tentpole franchises, everything else is sort of in that weird. No matter how hard they try and make it seem important it doesn't necessarily seem that important. So I think 299 is a great start. I think the next step is pushing it so that people know why they should be reading the other books now that the prices have dropped. If they do that, I think it could show some sales for them. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out with, say, Image or Boom or some other companies that were looking to sort of have the 299 arena to themselves. Can I continue? Please do. Insidious Major asks, who are your favorite editors and why? Oh, boy. Like, of all time or currently? Let's let's say currently, because of all time, we could probably go off. For, for, like, hours. You start, Graham. Thanks. Thanks for that one. <laughs> um, who are my... I really don't know. See, it's it's actually weird for me, because I, I'm initially, like, just going to mention Friends. I'd be like, well, there's Rachel Edited in the Dark Horse, and there's Mariah Huner at IDW. And I was like, yeah, but that's that's not what he's asking Right. Um, who are my favorite editors? 
you know, I think I might say Shelley Bond. Interesting. That is very interesting. I think she knows when to stay away, when to stay out of people's way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she can shepherd interesting projects into production. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like people whose editorial hands I can feel. Do you know what I mean? Well, I'll give you one that I'm surprised you didn't pick off the bat because it's going to sound weird because I, I wasn't following Brand New Day, but I would say Stephen Wecker, actually, because uh, I thought... That... Oh, that's true. Yes, mm-hmm. you're, you're entirely right. But here's the thing. Steve Wacker only works for me on some books. Uh, for example, I don't think he's, his Daredevil has produced anything particularly interesting. And I, I think that, you know, Shadowland and, and all of that seems very generic. Whereas I, I, I think his Spider-Man and his 52 mm-hmm. were great and he, he was really good at keeping things online and, and keeping things um, to a particular tone that I found agreeable. Mm-hmm. I think when he, when he goes outside that, when he goes to other books, it, it doesn't necessarily translate. Right. But I have to say, in terms of like public faces, I think Steve Parker's actually really funny and, and very enjoyable from that front. Well, and again, I get the sense that there is a sensibility that he has and and an influence. And, of course, he does seem to, to jog that stuff. So I'm trying to avoid people who, you know, have given me work or that I have actively spent a lot of time soliciting to try and give me work. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to say Mark Wade, but uh, I'm not. But he's not actually an editor anymore. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think that would be kind of hard. Uh, he. He's pretty awesome, though, as as an actual editor. Uh, I, I um, Axel Alonso, who, of course, I spent tons of time tr- trying to chase down to try and get work. That's in part because I really like the some of the people that he's developed. Maybe about 50-50, but, you know, he really, I thought, did a great job of grabbing a hold of... Um, Jason Aaron and developing him as a talent at Marvel to the point where those, the, you know, Aaron's Marvel books, I enjoy tremendously. And I see them as mm-hmm. a sort of a very shared kinship to the stuff that's going on with, uh, you know, from some of Alonzo's interests, you know, similarly, when you've got stuff like, you know, Garth Ennis's Punisher run, like a lot of the Mac stuff, I thought that Alonzo did a great job of, of taking that stuff and turning it into not just, um, Marvel Vertigo, but like a very different look at Marvel heroes, I guess. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm still a fan, uh, even though I, technically he too is actually probably doing less hands-on editing these days. I was going to say James Earl Jones. I think a, a incredible amount of the Oni books are spectacular. Wait, James Earl um, Lucas? James Earl Lucas, yes. James Earl Jones is great. I was fascinated. I'm like, I'm in awe. Yeah, I'm like so out of touch. Yeah, James Earl Jones is editing for Brody. That would be great. This is CNN. His, his main point is actually just to answer the phone for James Earl Lucas. <laughs> that would be great. There should be like a comic company that's nothing but James Earl guys like working there. Like a bunch of hillbillies. And uh... Okay, so so let's let's uh, let's wrap that question and move on. Okay, uh, let's see. Lucasaurus asks... Oh, he's great. He just offers uh, things for us to talk about. Yes. Okay, so I'll throw them out there, and you can just have comments or not. Murder Bullets. Haven't read it. I'm so goddamn delighted it's out there. Yeah, I think it's great. I, 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 did, you, I did a thing for uh, Robot Sex yesterday about why I think it's important, but I still can't get it right. I still don't know why it's important. I 
just feel that it is. Yeah. I Does agree. that make sense? Like, I, I, I don't know why I'm so interested in it as an idea beyond just I like James Stokoe's work and I'd really want to read it. Well, um, there's also an idea of, like, it's a hundred fucking pages. Like, really? Like, oh, my God. You know? That's an incredible amount of work. I Yeah, but it's not just that. Like, I love the idea that someone can just be like, I'm never going to finish this, but maybe you'll like it. I'll put it out on the internet. Yeah, I think so. Well, Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I find, I find that there to be great value there. Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, to me, I'm like, dude, it's a hundred pages. Like, slap it on Comixology and like price it at three ninety nine, or well, ideally one ninety nine, and I'll buy it. You know, because at that point, it's like a hundred unfinished Stoko pages. To me, is well worth you know, sort of your tr- like two or three issues of your regular body blah. But of course, I'm somewhat yeah. cheap. So at a buck ninety nine for a hundred pages, even if I know it doesn't finish, I would buy that shit and be reading it on my iPad immediately. It's just the whole like. Yeah, I, I, I went to the website and I'm like, oh, this is great, and I started scrolling down and I'm like, oh god, I don't like reading comics on the web. Uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. I had the same reaction, but at the same time, I know I'm going to. I'm just I haven't had the time yet because I only came out yesterday. Yep. Or at least I only found out about it yesterday. Yep. Uh, okay, what Eightwood does and doesn't always. Okay. Which I think is a reference to it not updating. I mean, uh, well, and also that 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 Ickwood had a had a donation drive. I think right is that I think it's still ongoing because he maneuvered. He stopped doing um, like as many tie-in shirts and t-shirts and products and things. So he actually sort of said like, you know, he's got like a little PayPal. Uh, Hall of Fame thing where people can contribute to. So I'm assuming that's what Luke uh, is talking about. My apology, uh, Luke, if that is not the case. Technically, what Akewood does owe me is it owes me uh, a listing on that list of donors because I, I actually gave him, PayPal'd him some money enough to get listed under a certain um, niche. I don't remember which. And last time I checked, I still wasn't on there. So... That's what I think he owes me. Apart from that, does he actually owe anyone like a regular or yeah, like how I, I, often I, he I, updates? I don't. I don't. Yeah, necessarily my think my so. feeling is that he doesn't, and neither does you know. No one does. I mean, it's different. I guess in the sense, I feel it's kind of different for anyone who's given money. Yes, because they give money with an expectation. But I think beyond that, the mm-hmm. idea that some creator owes us a regular schedule or something, I'm right. not really sure. It's something I I agree with. Yeah, I don't. I don't either. Maybe, maybe because I'm lazy myself and I can understand the not updating on a regular basis. I don't know. Well, here's the thing: as you and I know, for you know, my personal feeling is is that the the more you update a product that is free, the better the chance of building the momentum to get more people following you. But if you don't, you know, if as as happens at the Savage Critic, whenever we go through periods where we're not updating the website, people complain. It looks like our numbers drop. Maybe I don't know, you know. And so that's definitely different from when we're at pe- sites that update every day or on but, a regular but basis. Things, I mean, do you, you see? Here's here's the interesting thing because I know that you're the same as me in that you and I both feel guilty when we don't update Savage Critic. Agreed. So. I guess even though I'm arguing that Aquid owes us nothing. Right. We both feel like we owe somebody. Yeah. 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 Well, and my, well, see, but my personal feeling is, is that, and this is where things get weird is 
it's a very complex form of owing. I don't necessarily believe that I should phone in something. So of course that's why I don't quite update. Um, there's, but there's also the feeling of like, to an extent, I feel like I owe Hibs, which is separate from owing the readership. And also yes. part of me is, th- so that gets into that weird feeling of my, you know, I feel like we should update more often so that the readership's there, but it's not necessarily a case of, owing the readers. I don't necessarily think that. And I feel very incredibly lucky and privileged that I think for the most part, uh, the readers that are vocal uh, about Savage Critic are incredibly supportive uh, of whenever anyone updates or how they update. And we've got some fantastic comments both on our podcast and throughout the site that I think we're, you know, I feel really grateful for. But I also don't feel like having written one great review and gotten feedback means that I necessarily owe someone another review. It just sort of means almost that I owe them something good. You know what I mean? And if I can't do that or produce it, then then I start feeling conflicted and guilty. But it's a, it's a completely different can of worms, I think, for me. Or am I just splitting hairs? I mean, do you see what I no, say? I, I, no, I, I do see what you say. I just... I feel so conflicted between what I feel I owe my readers, which sounds incredibly pretentious when I say it like that, mm-hmm. and what I feel owed by people whose stuff I read. Right. Like, they feel completely at odds. And right. I don't know how much of that is, like, my own guilt, right. as opposed to, you know, any reality. Um, yes. Let's, let's leave this one ambiguous and move on, because yes. I think that otherwise we can talk in circles about this for a while. Uh, what do we think of lesser bat titles? Uh, that is an incredibly timely question for me because I just uh, picked up a trade from the library of the first six issues of Gotham City Sirens, right? Uh, and I'm not all the way through it, but I have to say I really enjoyed the first two issues. Uh, and the third issue was Scott Lobdell writing a Riddler story, which was kind of okay. The thing that was fascinating to me is how quickly the book seemed to, like, fly off the rails and I'm really curious to see if it ever gets back on the rails kind of um, I, I want to say that I'm not sure it does because I seem to remember that Paul Dini didn't really come back well that's it or like, he, he came, came back, back and then he, he left again, again. Yeah, yeah exactly and so I have a sneaking suspicion that it's going to get back on the rails and fly off again to me in a way it doesn't surprise me because it's a very strange like at the time I dismissed it as just kind of a, a like oh this is just you know, a collection of bad girl art, B sort of a, a kind of quasi spinoff, you know, from the bat family universe at a time when they don't have the proper way to have an, while they're trying to disassemble the bat family. So it's a way to kind of serve both masters, but reading the first two issues of it, I'm like, I could, uh, it's, it's basically like super villain team up from the seventies from Marvel or even that sort of short lived Joker series. I don't know if you ever read any issues of that, the DC put out. Um, I'm kind of like, it's these female villains in the DCU versus these other villains in the DCU very much in the Batman universe, you know? And I'm kind of like, I kind of, it's kind of a lively mix so far. I mean, Depending on how you feel about it, Paul Denis' obsessions with Zatanna and seemingly endless use of the character Hush are either incredibly exasperating or sort of charming in their consistency. I honestly can't figure out which. But I have to say, as obviously and clearly a lesser bat title, I kind of wish I had followed it more closely, and I'm kind of curious as to 
how bad a train wreck it's become because it it seems it was much more it ended up being pleasantly surprising when I started reading it. This reminds me of my experience reading The Trades of Fred Robin, where I was pretty much the same. I, I went in expecting very little. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed it much more and almost had out. well, obviously it's going to get bad at some point. I wonder when it gets bad. <laughs> Honestly, that was my thought. Uh, it's, I, overall, I would say that I think from what little I have read, the lesser bad titles uh, now are a higher quality than they were uh, even before Batman R.I.P. Because right. I actually went back and read some of the Batman R.I.P. trades, um, and they're really not good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean, they fill a need, I guess. I was thinking the other day that I think there's far too many bat titles starring Batman, right. whichever Batman it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, which led me to believe, as well, oh, not believe, but think, uh, did David Finch, Dark Knight, never came out, did it? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what happened with that. I assume that after I saw it with the Grant Morrison title, I'm like, did they just fold those two together? Is that how that works? I'm totally confused. Is Batman the Return the new Grant Morrison series? No, it no, was, it, was a, it was a one-off. That's just a one-shot that ends on, yes. like, a cliffhanger or whatever? Yes. Wow. Okay, all right. I'm but, nice but to here's the thing. It meant that The Dark Knight did not come out at all in November, and it's disappeared from the solicits as well. So quite clearly, the Dark Knight is in severe problem. Well, and was the Dark Knight the one that Finch was writing as well? Writing as and drawing, yeah. yeah. Maybe they just went, "This isn't working," or maybe he felt it wasn't working. And but there's been no, there's been no announcement. Well, is that surprising? You're going to find it like buried in the middle of you know a DC blog post congratulating you know I don't know. Oh, I've I've just I've just googled it. It's now going on sale December twenty ninth. Mm. That's a full month later. Wow. I wonder if it's going to become a bi-monthly. No, they're saying they're saying issue two's coming out in January and issue three's coming out in February. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, so what's so Grant Morrison's only bat title is his Incorporated. Incorporated. Huh. That tone was so dramatically different for that one David Finch issue. That's really, really Which, fucking weird. Uh, I don't know if you, you listen to um NPR at all, but mm-hmm. NPR has a, a pop culture, I think it's called Pop Culture Happier, a podcast with their, their culture editors, um, and Glenn Weldon gave non-comic reading culture editors Batman, The Return, and the latest issue of Batgirl to read as an introduction to superhero comics. Uh-huh. Uh, and they were all like, you know, huh, this is interesting, but not very good. And <laughs> while, while I was listening, I realized... First of all, I, I had to, this, like, why are you giving them that? Oh, God. And then I realized how badly DC fucked up that if that's meant to be an introductory one-shot for Batman. Because mm-hmm. Batman The Return is not good. It's not a good comic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's I, honestly... It's well, no, 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 no. It's not a good comic, but I didn't really think it was that much worse than... There are some Grant I, Morrison I, scripted issues of Batman R.I.P. that strike me as about on the same level frankly. But they they continue and build to something. Yeah, true. Batman no. Batman Return as a one shot that's meant to introduce new readers to the Batman universe. Oh yeah, it's actually really terrible. It's, that's why I thought it was a continuing yeah. story, because I'm like No, no, it's not it's a one shot. Oh my god, that's just terrible. Like I really as exactly. a ter- Yeah. No, I agree, but I'm like, yeah, no, I I I'm surprised that, you know, Batman Incorporated wouldn't have been a better 
jump in in, in a way for them, but you know, because it's yeah, just I, you can tell that Batman Return was written after Batman Incorporated One. Oh, interesting. Do you not think? I I, I thought there's just things that were like, I don't know. It just seemed like Batman Return really felt like an afterthought. Honestly, considering like 35 seconds ago, I thought that Batman the Return, because I thought it was a one shot. I really did. And then I read it and I'm like, oh, so this is the, like, I kind of honestly thought that maybe they folded David Finch's series into Grant Morrison's doing this title and he was just going to run with it because he's got enough ideas seated in there that I kind of can't see coming up, being handled in Batman Incorporated particularly well or even consistently. You know what I mean? Like, it felt like the first issue of its own book that, while oh, not I, great, I, I, I could I kind of see. Yeah, I think they'll be um, continued in other Batman books. I think it's probably going to lead to another crossover. Yeah, I guess so. And I have to say, that's kind of like, it, it, at that point, I, I sort of you lose interest up. in it. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm like, I don't, I don't think any of those ideas are inherently interesting enough to me to be like, oh, and here's what we're pulling out of the blue. But like as Damien's weird potential character arc stuff that was going on in Batman The Return, I was like, I might want to see where this is going without seeing it going in the Batman and Robin, you know, uh, continuing series by, uh, what's his name? Peter Tomasi. I have to say I got the, um, even though I didn't get any new comics at the store last week, I got mailed Detective Batwoman and Batman and Robin. Mm Mm-hmm. And Paul Cornell's Batman and Robin was much more enjoyable than I was expecting it to be. Oh, great. And I, I, I actually would love to see that characterization of Dick Grayson continued elsewhere. Ah, fabulous. The characterization is essentially, now that Bruce Wayne is back, Dick Grayson is playing around with the idea of being a funny Batman. <laughs> and Damien is calling him on it in the story. Which That's I think is funny. I think it's a funny idea. Um and also Detective Comics I thought was really good. Surprisingly strong. Well, yeah, everybody's been jumping up and down about that Detective Comics. I should be picking that up. Can you hold just uh, one second, Graham? Sure. Hold on one second. And I will leave this in for... Okay. I had to turn off the heat. Oh, are you talking to the readers, <laughs> listeners, yeah, about I, me again? Yeah, I, but I totally started. I got as far as, and I will leave this in for everyone. And then you came back. And it's Damn like, it. Graham <laughs> can't leave you alone with the listeners for a minute I swear Sorry, to god it was, you're going to have to cut it out because it wasn't even interesting I know sorry about that okay so Talk, I, I'm sorry so, talking about uh, not very interesting things that would make us jump off Luke also wants to know what do you think about Lint I'm for it I will happily tell you that I've been producing more of it since going on the plans oh really Lint itself yeah huh interesting yeah Maybe. no Draw your own conclusions. Make your own assumptions, everyone. Yeah, uh, exactly. The meaning of Tintin's aesthetic legacy. Ah, uh, Luke. I, I, don't love, know I love how he throws that one in at the end. Yeah, like, exactly. Really um, I think Puru Hershey has been uh, completely ignored when it comes to what he brought to comics. I, I would love to see the sense of design and the sense of, um, the sense of color as well that he brought to, to Tintin. Huh. Else, comics. And I... I I don't. I really don't. I think the Hershey's art style is... I mean, you can see... I guess it, like you can see more of an influence in European comics, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but... huge. That whole... I mean, the the that wonderful stuff that Tucker and uh, Joe did, writing it on their various crossovers about the Humanoids line, really made me realize how much of the, the Ligné Claire style 
uh, is much more prevalent than I think that it is. So I'm always like, really? You would say that Hergé got passed over when you can still see, like, New Yorker covers with, like, Jus Suarte, you know, doing the doing the illustration work? I mean, I'm... Yeah, but do, you, but do you think that's actually coming from Hergé, or do you think it's coming from elsewhere? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm enough of an ignoramus about the, the school to, to not know for sure. Because uh, I, I feel that Hergé is... And this is maybe me sort of showing my own ignorance. But I think that a lot of that stuff has come from people who have been influenced by Hergé but have then gone into influence other people and the other people have not really seen Hergé. Do you know what I mean? It's like Mike Golden has theoretically been influenced by a lot of comic artists, but he's not. They've not seen his work. They've seen our Adams and then they've seen, you know, Jim Lee and other people aping and aping someone who's aping it. Right. And so I'm not sure that's... I mean, there, I guess that's some of the legacy of the work, but I don't know if it really counts because I don't know if the original work has really been seen. Interesting. Here's a fun I, I, fact I, that, that somebody told me that uh, Mike Allred's uh, Madman, a mm-hmm. big influence on it, was Tintin. I can see that. Yeah, isn't that kind of... But I can see that in terms of the writing more than the art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I mean, apart from the occasional like he hops on a bicycle type thing, but in terms of the in terms of the writing approach and the pacing approach, I would actually yeah. say that I can I can see that. So, and of course, you know, it's a great time to ask that because Charles Burns's Xed Out has you know that very lovely sort of ten ten design influence on the cover. I admit I have not cracked the inside to know how strongly that influence plays out on the inside. It's insides. all so, about Tintin. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I've not read it. But <laughs> um, James Shee asks, best holiday comic stories? Oh, that's a great one. That's a great story. Uh, do you have one? Uh, I can I can think of a favorite. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure I can think of a best. Uh, my favorite, co- like, just general holiday comic um, is, well, actually, I've got two. The Teen Titans, Bob Haney, Christmas Carol. Yes. I was going to say spectacular, yeah. um, or the Mark Wade Christmas special about Joey and Maria, and they have to give birth and they're homeless. That ends with Barry Allen coming back just for the last page. <laughs> the last, so it's, it's it's a fairly generic Christmas special, and the last page, is, like last second last page rather, is Wally and Linda. I think he's with Linda at that point. Um, are visiting Jay Garrick and his wife, whose name I can't remember. And there's a knock on the door and they're like, I wonder who that is. And they open the door and Barry Allen's standing there. And it's just like, hey guys, I'm back. And the caption is, happy holidays, everyone. And that's it. There's no next thing. And it's just such a great last page. And especially considering the storyline is set up. I love Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really wonderful. Uh, Okay. Me... I'm good. Those are great choices, by the way, Graham. I totally agree with you about the Teen Titans one, in fact. And I was going to say that when I was a kid, DC had a treasury edition, like Christmas with the superheroes, that was like, you know, the same size as the Superman versus Muhammad Ali yeah. that we had. That had that that Bob Haney Teen Titans story in it. And it also had... Did it have eight- a uh, I don't, you know, I don't remember. This is the weirdest thing. I only remember two stories offhand. I'm pretty sure there was a Batman one that was probably like from the 40s or the 50s. And I can't remember who the other one was. But so like you would think a Legion story in there would be a nice pick. All I remember, though, t- to this day, Teen Titans and Angel and the Ape 
which was my very first Angel in the Ape story, and I fell in love with those characters. So that right off the bat makes it like uh, among my favorites. Um, and then I will give a shout out to Shannon Garrity and Andrew Farago. Farago? I don't know how to say his last name. Uh, Shannon and Andrew, who you know from Com- Cartoon Art Museum and sure. their own web comics ventures, and Shannon's uh, just absolutely amazing comics commentary. They did a story that was about the company Christmas party at AIM, I think, and it was like a it, it was like a maybe a six page story that was set up as interstitial pages in between the stories, so you get two pages of it. I I, I think I've read this. And I quite adored it. I thought that that was tremendously fun. Um, The Legion story I thought that might have been in your special is there's a a Legion story with Jose Luis Garcia Lopez illustrating where Supervising Legion go to find the Christmas star. Yeah, that must be, that's it. Once you said Jose Garcia Lopez, I'm like, yes, he was in it because I remember seeing his name on the credits, so... Uh, but I don't know if that's true. Maybe I can jump over to Google. Although we're, I'm sure we're already taking too much time with this. Um, uh, there, there are seriously lots. I'm a sucker for Christmas uh, comics. I mean, mm-hmm. really ridiculously sucker. Uh, I really like the Hellblazer Christmas special from a couple of years ago, mm. which was just, I think, issue 250 of the regular series, which mm-hmm. just happened to come out in December, but was really good. Uh, most of the Vertical Winter's Edges which they did like 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, ago. we did a bunch that? of those. I, I was, yeah, some of those were cute. Some of those I didn't really dig. I dug the idea more than I dug the execution, it always seemed like. Yeah, but again, like it gets to like, you know, Christmas specials and I'm complete sucker. Uh, I will all, every year I buy the DC holiday special. I don't, I don't buy the Christmas, I don't buy the Halloween special. I don't buy, there's another special. Day, but I always buy the Christmas special. Right. Um, and I always get sucked in. That is fantastic. Seriously, just give me superheroes like, you know, considering giving gifts to each other. There is, in one of those specials, and I could not tell you which one, I'm sure there's one about Superman and Batman giving each other presents, uh, and the choice, like the, the difficulty of having choosing the presents for each other, and that was awesome. I can't remember who wrote it or draw it. I just remember... I can't even remember the punchline. I just remember the punchline. Cute and funny. Right, right. Yeah. It's one of the like, half-remembered things. Yeah. Um, there's a spectacular Superboy... From the mid '80s, I want to say, mm-hmm. where he acts, he crosses over to parallel worlds where Christmas doesn't exist. Oh, that's a great idea. Uh, and the cover is great. The cover is like Gil Kane and like mm-hmm. people throwing things at Superboy as he flies out, like towards the reader. And it's like the town that killed Christmas or something like that, um, <laughs> which is great because it's got um, I've forgotten his last name, Kurt, not Swan, the other one. Oh, uh, Scharfenberger. Yes. He he does the art inside, which you know, great link between that and Gil Kane. No difference at all. Um, but it's it's a completely like cheesy, wonderful Christmas story that ends with someone waking up the audience at the end. Wow, that's really cool. And it's I want to say it's like from eighty three or something. And there's a Dial H for Hero like back up in the back. You could you could tell I really loved this comic when I was a kid, can you? You know, what's interesting is, yeah, exactly. You totally do. And it's it's funny. It's like I just found the um, the treasury, the Christmas with the superheroes is uh, it, it looks like it came out in. Does it say what year it came out? It it was. But it has um, Silent Night, Deadly Night from Batman 239, Billy Batson's Xmas from Captain Marvel's Adventures, uh, February 1947. Uh, a Swingin' Christmas Carol from Teen Titans 13, which we mentioned. 
Action Comics uh, 17, 117, Christmas Town, USA, and the Angel and the Ape story, the $500,000 doll caper, was a new Angel and the Ape story done for that uh, edition, written by John Albano and illustrated by Bob Oxner and Wally Wood. So Wow. Yeah. Wally Wood? Yeah. It wow. says that it looks to be inked by Wally Wood, So, which is amazing to me. Um, I've also just remembered uh, while you're talking. Actually, my favorite Christmas story mm-hmm. is from the Batman Adventures. They did a, a holiday special, mm-hmm. uh, and there's one that is, I think it's called the Harley and the Ivy, and it got adapted into a, an episode of the cartoon. Oh, interesting. Uh, basically, it's basically the two of them are bored on Christmas Eve, and they and Poison Ivy mind controls Bruce Wayne. Without realizing that, she, that he's Batman, uh-huh. just just so he can he will buy them presents and get them a Christmas tree, <laughs> and it's awesome. It's really really funny. <laughs> That's and I, and I, want, I want to say it's like Ronnie Del Carmen or someone doing art, but like the art is spectacular. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a really 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 good one. Mm-hmm. That is fantastic. Um, okay, I think we've done that to death. Oh, and then some. I, in fact, everyone is really. Must be sorry that that. Wait, wait, we're asked. not we're not done, my friends. Tim oh, O'Neill no, no, no. <laughs> asks, as a just as a subject, Secret Wars two. <laughs> and the thing is, is we've discussed Secret Wars two, so yeah, and I I have uh, I I read the omnibus. I got the omnibus at the Portland Library, and I still have this just like sneaking love for it, even though I know it's shit. <laughs> Uh, and I, I, I think if someone else had drawn it, it would have been uh, massive. Well, the, actually, see, this is one of the things that, that when we were talking about editors from the other podcast, like who is like and Jim Shooter in specific, I thought Shooter ushered in some really tremendously bad art by some of the things that his he dictated. Um, so Marvel Comics from that era are kind of ugly and static, I think, because he had a whole bunch of you know, things about like, you know, you got to show the full figure and blah, 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 blah. Uh, Secret Wars 2, honestly, I would love if they had the omnibus in the San Francisco Public Library, I would read that son of a bitch in a heartbeat. At the time, I remember Secret Wars, when I read it at a ki- as a kid, I remember thinking that it was kind of disappointing and I was probably a little too old for it. So honestly, I took a pass on Secret Wars 2 after pretty much the first issue. Um, and oh, there's you, that you, really you, mean. There's that really mean kick in the crotch at Steve Gerber in that first issue. So, yeah, um, there's there's. Um, it's kind of stunning. I mean, it really is awesome in all the wrong ways. Exactly, awesome uh, in all the wrong ways. But it is awesome still. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. I think you have, I, I don't know, I, I'm tempted to say it's an age thing. I'm like, huh, yeah, Jim Shooter, like, personally attacking, like, other people who, you know, used to work at Marvel who bad no, it's, them. It's, it's, it's totally Jim Shooter settling scores and trying to, because after this he did new, the new universe as well, and Star Brands as well, I think is yeah. a continuation of what he was trying to do in Secret Wars 2, which is he was in his own insane, blundery way trying to advance the superhero genre so it could address more adult concerns. He did it in arguably the worst way possible. Yeah, I, I was about but to I say, Graham. He, I think he was trying to do that. 
I, I genuinely think you're trying to do that. Okay. I, I will give you the benefit of the doubt. For other people who enjoy, who think of the 80s as awesome because they love the idea of a decade where coke-fueled egomaniacs ruined it for the rest of us, Secret Wars 2 is Yeah, exactly. You. Yeah, you'd, you'd enjoy it as well, everyone. <laughs> um, David, David Wolken suggests D-Man as a subject to talk about. I have nothing to say about D-Man other than I remember him in Captain America, like two issues in the 80s. Yes, uh, I also have. I have just about nothing to say about him. Otherwise, I've had some friends tell me that he's a great character. I, I again, I jumped off. I loved J.M. Dematius's run on Dematius. Dem- I don't know. I, um, uh, I don't know on Captain America so much that when his run ended at like three hundred, I think I jumped off, and Grunwald jumped on right after that, and proceeded to be on the title forever. So I missed. I'm telling you, cancelled like 150 issues. Yeah. So I mean, really, the guy was like kind of uh, maybe he ran it into the ground, maybe not. But I missed the Grunwald era of which D-Man is kind of one of the crucial centerpieces. So hopefully that stuff will get collected because uh, uh, I'd like to check it out. Sorry, David. Sorry, uh, David. You're still handsome though. <laughs> you are so handsome, David. I, I hope that works out for you. Um, <laughs> T.S. Moreau. I think his name is Terrence, but I could be wrong. And for some reason, my Twitter is not behaving right now. Mm. Where do you guys see comics in the whole as a whole going? Will everything just be comics in 10 years' time? Will it be more Euros style? Oh, gosh. He also, then, so... he also then says, the more lofty prognostications, the better. <laughs> That's good, because really, you've asked such questions that you can't avoid going for lofty prognostications. That's right. Soon, comics will be beamed at everyone's brain. Uh... Where do I see comics as a whole going? Um, digitally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. Digitally niche. Pretty much as they are, but smaller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh... Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't see any... Ma- like, in the next 10 years, I don't see... I don't see a massive change coming. Yeah. Yeah. I see small changes along the lines of where we're going. So I think there's going to be more digital stuff, but, and I think the direct market will continue to shrink. And I think that honestly, the um, book trade will probably shrink as well. But I, I mean, I don't think it's going to be a massive shift. I don't, I don't, I'd love to see things being more Euro style, but I see no reason why it would, why it would do that. Okay. I'm going to go for the lofty prognostication of, that the superhero um, market and the direct market are going to age, and as they continue to age, they're going to shrink. That the people, they'll still continue to draw people in in sort of smaller and smaller amounts in kind of a legacy style way. You know, like a lot of people will be brought into it because, you know, their dads brought them in or their, you know, their uh, older brothers brought them in. Kind of like the way that a lot of people came to comics now, but. You know, with a with a slight bump up because of people sort of rediscovering the love. I, I think that there's a lot of people who like were reading comics who left recently who might come back sooner as a result of digital. But I think the real potentially interesting area for growth in comics is going to be in about 10 years, maybe 15 years, where the kids who were reading manga who aged out decide to come back to check out the marketplace or alternately the people who were so inspired by manga that they're making their own books like drawing their own pages and seeing stuff that's sort of weirdly like 
like the closest comparison might be Scott Pilgrim, although it's going to be, it'll probably end up being entirely different from Scott Pilgrim, rolling down the pikes seven or eight years later. Now, whether or not the marketplace will have changed enough that, that they will totally transform the marketplace in a permanent way, who can say? Who can say? Um, also, as a lofty prognosticator, I would say that somebody hopefully will remember the big manga boom that we went through and figure out a way to get the next generation when they come down the pike 10 years from now and how to properly do that. If, and it, it, if that's all attributed to um, Dragon Ball Z reruns and Naruto reruns and that, that was mainly the where all that came from, then so be it. But I, I would like to see I would like to see a return a rerun of the manga boom, but have it be something that ended up being more sustainable. Exactly. Have it not be a boom. Yeah, and not have it be a boom. Which I I, I would like to think that that will happen. It's just not going to happen for another five to ten years. Well, that's that's the the end of his where he's wanting us to talk Woo-hoo! about. So, so I'm well done. I the- uh, I would love for that to be the case, but I'm just too cynical to believe it would happen. Yeah, it seems really unlikely because of how um, calcified the marketplace is. And I do not mean that. It, I'm not dumping on the direct market because, honestly, I feel like all of our media is kind of calcified in a way and is having troubles. Like, looking at this whole battle between Comcast and Netflix, I'm like... As far as I can tell, all media is having a problem of trying to figure out how to get stuff to people in a way that means that they'll be able to 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 still have their existing structures. And I'm not sure that we can necessarily – a lot of media maybe not be able to have that cake and also be able to, to eat it as well. I think there might be yeah. some serious changes coming down the pike for the way that – the way that entertainment is delivered to us – and the way it's monetized in the next five to ten years. I, I've been really um, frustrated by the reaction to the Comcast Netflix story, if only because people are responding to like the headlines as opposed mm-hmm. to the story itself. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a lot more complicated than what the headlines are. And I say that as someone who wrote an incredibly like basic headline about it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, everyone's like, you know, Comcast are trying to blackmail Netflix. And they are and they're not. Like, Comcast aren't trying to pull Netflix off the air, is the thing. Comcast is just essentially wanting more money to stream Netflix. And and I kind of but have... But at, at no point have they said, we'll take it off if you don't. Right. They've just said there might be problems, which I think is actually almost reasonable. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's a little shady because the way they went about it pretty much is like the cartoon version of blackmail. Yes, exactly. You know, give us some money or, or then, you know, something mm-hmm. might happen to your website. Right. But, yeah. Yeah, but you and I both know the difference in the size of bandwidth between a text file and a JPEG file and a fucking movie streaming in real time, you uh, know. Did you, did you see the thing, the report that said that in peak times, Netflix is basically 20% of America's internet? Yeah. Yeah, was that's it 20%? Insane. I know, yes. that's huge. I that mean, is that's huge. Insane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I can actually understand. When you read that, then you're like, well, someone's asking for more money to stream Netflix movies. I'm like, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I kind of have that same thing. I think I think what's... So, yeah, I have that same reaction. On the other hand, I also feel like 
A, Comcast is doing it badly, and B, it would be better if there were rules in place, not just like, hey, good news, here's a new fee. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's going to fly. Uh, but, but yeah, there I do kind of, part of me has a thing of like, yeah, if, you know, if you're all going to be using the roads, maybe there should be some, a difference between the the, you know, 18-wheel truck that takes up three lanes of traffic and the Peugeot. I don't know. Maybe that's me. That's the most simplistic, nonsensical metaphor I could come up with at the drop of a hat. But it was a good one. I appreciate it. <laughs> It'll only make sense once you see my Return to Judgment Mountain Kirby-inspired miniseries. Um, <laughs> Chad Nevitt says, you guys should talk about how Dreadstar is power. And I refuse to do that because I don't really like Jim Starlin or Dreadstar. I like Jim Starlin. I have to admit, Dreadstar was not, to me, was Jim Starlin pretty much after he had peaked. Uh, the I, best part is I then responded to Chad by saying that Peter David's work in the book was better. Yeah. Just just to, like, poke at him. Mm-hmm. And the best part was he, he, he was like, I dig Peter David's work in the book, but no, no, it was not. You know, and I have I to love, say. I love he actually he actually responded to me. I suppose it's just been like, you were quite clearly just trying to get a reaction. I, You know... Graham, that's the miracle of you. We never know when you're trolling. Because I read that and my blood ran cold. I was like, well, I know what we'll be arguing about tomorrow. I thought you were serious. I was, I was, no, I was completely trolling. I've, I've read like one issue of Peter David and Dry Stars. <laughs> I have no idea. I totally fell um, for it. Richly Shantz, who I was talking about before, mm-hmm. um, says, uh, this is a great one because I'm not sure either of us will have anything to say. Portrayals of Carol Ferris that being Green Lantern's girlfriend, up to and including Blake Lively opposite Ryan Reynolds. I'll say this. Blake Lively does not in the least convince me as someone who runs a a, a jet pilot company. Blake Lively, I have not seen her in other things, but in the trailer, she did not convince me as someone who either dressed or fed herself. So much (laughs) less an aviation company. Uh, and as for Carol Ferris, you know, honestly, I think that she's had the toughest road to hoe. Oh, as... no. Yeah, Gene, well. Gene Loring. Gene Loring. Well, has, has, until what, like, Gene uh, Loring came back and murdered people, I would, no, I would Gene have said Carol was, Ferris. Gene Loring had the cheating on her superhero husband's story yeah, to deal with. That's true. That kind of sucked as well. But Carol Ferris... Also has had some bad times, I think. Don't you? Yeah, I have to say, Carol Ferris, and again, this is us getting back to Steve Englehart, Carol Ferris as the Star Sapphire who wanted to stay Star Sapphire of the 80s. Mm-hmm. I still think that was completely awesome and much preferable to the, the Carol Ferris we have today. Yeah, see, I kind of like the Carol Ferris in Steve Englehart's Green Lantern. I felt like it was the closest the character was ever going to come to making sense. You know, because like you said, there was that she becomes Star Sapphire, and she's kind of like, well, no, but why? Why take this power from me? Yes, yes. Why should I give up? I mean, of course, also she is the latest in a long, long line of supervillain dominatrix characters. Yeah, well. which, which, as you said, is honestly like a story. I'm still sad that we never managed to do for a nine. But um, <laughs> no, there, there was a point at one point where uh, Charlie and I were going to do a story. Uh, about superhero dominatrices because you know this famous cover of Star Sapphire and Superman's licking your boot. Um, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For some reason, I for some reason that came up in conversation one day, 
and I was like, God, there's you know, there's lots of female characters like this. It's like you know, I a, a cliche in super comics. Mm-hmm. Charlie's like, oh my god, we should totally do the best dominatrix characters in, in superhero comics. Not even like the best characters, but like the most dominatrixy. The most dominatrixy. <laughs> Which would have been a great story. Yeah, yeah. we never did it. Yeah, we oh, never what, did a, it. what a shame. Because uh, you're it's right. A shame, it would have been fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, like Carol Ferris. Carol Ferris makes more sense when she's not being the person who pines after Hal Jordan. And for the majority of her existence, She's been the person who pines after Hal Jordan, which really makes no sense. Like, yeah. I don't get why she does. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's the problem. She, like, all the DC Silver Age heroines I had some problems with. Although, again, like, weirdly going back and reading the original Adam stories, I almost felt like uh, Jean Loring was the best of them, in a way. Um but Carol Ferris, yeah, in, she just doesn't make sense in terms of the, oh, I'm pining after Hal Jordan. Oh, I'm going to figure out a way to make him marry me. Oh, hey, it's Sidney Hawkins Day. You know, to this all this weird power stuff. Ultimately, it's kind of those weird, like, I just never got the feeling that Hal Jordan and Carol Ferris actually liked each other in the comics. Like, I never really thought it through. Like, maybe they're just awesome in the sack together. But honestly, neither of them seem very likable people at a fundamental level, you know? So my, my favorite version of their relationship ever was new frontier. Oh yeah. 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 I can see that. Where, which I think made sense in part because it didn't let it get past Hal flirting with his boss. Right. Exactly. Do you know what I mean, like, mm-hmm. like there is the kiss towards the end, but even that is like, you know, in crazy circumstances and you can quite believe afterwards, she's like, seriously, you know, I thought you were going to die. Get over it. Um, and I that's but that's that's the version of the character that makes more sense to me right which again is in a very retro context so uh, I I would like to have I would kind of like I like weirdly I also like Carol like I like Carol Ferris as a character I just don't like her in relation to Hal Jordan so that's why I kind of thought in that sense of sort of splitting them off it kind of made more sense and in a way, if they if they were to pursue some of that Star Sapphire stuff, I don't know if they still are. But I believe know. I believe they are, and uh, I also know Star Sapphires because I know you're reading Black as Night. Star Sapphires is beginning to bleed in, not Black as Night. It's beginning mm-hmm. to bleed into Brightest Day. Uh huh. They're they're exploring the, to me, still completely inexplicable connection that Star Sapphire has with Hawkman. With Hawkman? Yes. Didn't you know this? Star Sapphire is powered by. This is. I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound even more insane than it actually is. Star Sapphire, as like you know, how the Green Lanterns are powered by the Green Lantern battery. Sure. Star Sapphires are powered by the corpses of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. <laughs> okay, but I kind of see it because they because Star Sapphires are 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 powered they're the power of love. Yes. And of course Hawkman and Hawkgirl have this love that is like bound them together throughout yes. eternity. Yes, that's that's exactly it. Also could I just say that uh Star Sapphire is being powered by love still is kind of weird to me. Like yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah no I I, I, I I think we're done. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, uh next question. Brian Weiner says comics you're embarrassed you used to read regularly and when did you finally drop them? 
I think that was actually my favorite question, by the way. I, everyone's questions were great. I dug them and, of course, laughed my ass off at many. But I thought that was actually like, I was like, oh, thank God. Here's a question that we can answer. Um, and even... Uh, I, I'm not sure I can't answer. Really? Um, hmm. Comics I'm embarrassed I used to read regularly. Uh, I don't know. Hmm. Well, let me let me start and see what you can catch on with because I have a ton of them. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, the thing about comics is usually most of the time I'm more embarrassed that I wasn't reading a comic. You know, yeah, than exactly. I was. Like I can't I can't think of anything that I look back and I'm like I can't believe I wasted my time on that. Like I, I remember like now being kind of embarrassed that I didn't realize how awesome Kirby was, and so my younger brothers would buy Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man and stuff like that. And I'd be like, uh, this stuff, this stuff's for kids. And then read each issue eight or nine times, you know, like, so, but, but there are comics that I'm sort of embarrassed that I used to read regularly. Uh, the great thing is working in comics experience every Friday and doing the Savage Critic on a, a much more consistent basis. As a result, I used to read, feel obligated to read a ton of stuff. And I have to say the guiltiest pleasure was reading Tarot uh, by Jim Ballant. Uh, oh, my God, you and Chris Sims. What is that about that book? It, it, you know what it is? Honestly, on the one hand, it's the schizophrenia going on in, in the book itself where the book manages to objectify women while proclaiming to celebrate them at the same time. Like, it's really kind yeah, but of... The, but on the one issue of Tarot I've read, which I'd like to point out, was because you and Hibbs made me read it. <laughs> um, I don't know if you remember that, but you and Hibbs made me read an issue of Tarot. Um, there were so many letters in there from women who who agreed with it. Yes. Yes. That's the thing that's weirdly mind-blowing. And assuming that he's not making those up, which I assume that he's not it really speaks to a certain individual that has the concepts of objectification and empowerment, like deeply, deeply, deeply confused, like has them like almost existentially ass backward, um, probably literally ass backward in the case of tarot. Now that I think about it, but it, if there was a book on the stands that was so bad that it was good, month in and month out, it was tarot. And he was doing what he wanted to do. He has just enough, um, Jim Ballant has uh, enough professional chops that he could put together something that was, you know, professional. And yet at the same time was incredibly like, like tasteless and like terrifying and just unbelievably hilarious and horrifying in its banality and yet somehow deeply readable. So it's kind of like if Jack Kirby had no imagination, you know what I mean? Like you would kind of get something that's kind of like tarot, you know, it really is somebody's own personal vision in a way that is um, kind of compulsively readable, even though you are reading it in part to turn around and make your friend Graham McMillan read it, you know, uh, just to watch him blanch while he turns the pages. so Oh, I remember the horror with the judge reading it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember which issue it was that we insisted that you read, though, because it's... It was just shame. whatever issue was out that, that week. Yeah, yeah. You so... were just looking at the store and you thought it would be hilarious. It would be awesome. Comics um, I get embarrassed used to read regularly. I really am not sure there are any. <laughs> I'm serious. Part of it is because when it comes to comics, I have very little shame. Right. Um... And also, the, like, ones 
you know, I my glib answer was going to be Uncanny X Men after issue two hundred. Mm-hmm. But I I knew no better. Do you know what I mean? Like by the time I realized I didn't like it, I stopped reading it. Yeah, I I went through a period where I was reading again Engelhart's Return to West Coast Avengers, which I thought was clearly inferior Engelhart, but I was still reading it anyway. Like again, reading it and like, oh my god, all these exclamation points and oh my god, all this stuff that he's doing. But I remember reading it. I don't necessarily I, I, and 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 reading it regularly, but also being kind of embarrassed by it. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, I was embarrassed by all the issues of John Byrne's Superman titles that I read when they came out. Like, I started buying that. I started from the very beginning. And each issue, I was like, this isn't particularly good. Like, every once in a while, there'd be something that would be like, oh, this is kind of great. But it'd be like a panel or two, like the way he'd draw Darkseid. And then he'd go back to being like, why aren't I liking this as much as I was? You know? So, um, that uh, was that another you remember. Um... Yeah. Yeah, I, I have. I don't know how to answer that question. I really don't know. Yeah, I'm racking my brain. I really don't know. Um. So I mean, those 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 are kind of that's kind of the you know. It's like I can sort of pick one from each decade where it's like, yeah, I have to admit, I'm kind of embarrassed that I read that. I'm kind of embarrassed. Uh, I I'm really embarrassed that uh, I don't. I can't. That the San Francisco Public Library has volume one. And volume three of X-Men Forever, but not volume two. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do to be able to read the second volume so I can read the third. I'm kind of embarrassed that I'm enjoying that. <laughs> That's um, true, actually. That was very embarrassing. <laughs> X-Men Forever is a good one, actually. Yeah, X-Men Forever will be my answer to that. Because I, I, for the first series, I really loved it. And then it, it stopped and restarted the second issue. Well, the second series, and I couldn't be bothered even picking up the first issue. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it like, is I, odd how I didn't, I didn't stop liking it at any point, mm-hmm. but I just didn't... I was like, yeah, well, story's done. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's it. There's jumping on points and there's jumping off points, and you've got to be very, very careful where those... Every jumping on point can also be a jumping off point if you do it wrong, so... Yeah. Um, okay, two, two more people have asked things and then we're done. Good Lord, we're, really? We're running. Yes. Okay. Um, Adam P. Nave... You guys should discuss what comics you would love to see done as TV shows, since more and more are going there. Nice. Uh, okay. Do you want to? Do you want to start? Uh, Paraman and Iron Fist, I think, would make a great TV show. Really? That's hilarious. also. I have to say, and I've thought this for a long time, and if, if I was in any position to make this happen, uh, The Demon by Kirby, done as the Venture Brothers. <laughs> Because as I was reading the demon, and I loved the demon, but as I was reading the demon, every single time Randu was like, with my ESP powers, I was like, someone could make the greatest parody of the demon ever. Pretty much just by writing Randu as he had written. That is true. That is so true. Actually, half those characters, the way they are written by Kirby, God bless him. Um... But honestly, I would love to see that. I'd love to see um, the demon. Also, I think the demon would would make a good TV show. If you like, if you did it straight as well, but yeah. I think the demon done as a parody would be spectacular. Yeah, both um, of those would work. The creeper. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, actually, the creeper would be great. The creeper would be great. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, I would have loved to have seen the Invisibles TV show from the nineties. Yeah, that'd be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, that that the, the scripts used to be online. I don't know if they still are, but they, they were. 
it was an interesting downscaling of the original series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I didn't read the script. I think that would be that'd be kind of interesting. Brandy Graham's King City is an animated show. Wow, that'd be fantastic. You know, ever since Bruce Tim mentioned in um, in an interview that he kept pitching Commandy as an animated series where he would just basically oh, yeah, be as seems... faithful to Kirby, to Kirby's timeline as possible. Yeah. I, I'm like, I would want that so much. I think that would be fantastic. A, a DC animated Kirby series headed up by also, Bruce Tim. If DC ever decided to do Mr. Miracle as a Saturday morning cartoon, I think that it's tailor-made for Yeah, agreed. I think actually a Mr. Miracle cartoon would, would be fantastic. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's funny because I had a whole bunch of... Uh, it's one of those things that I haven't thought of in a while, but I remember at some point I had that list of like, oh, and this would be a fucking awesome perfect TV show. Uh, you know, Challengers of the Unknown, I used to think would be kind of a great idea for a show. Now I, I'm not so sure so much. Um, I will say, and I mentioned this in, in Twitter, and it's a cheat because it's not a, uh, it, it's not a, a, a TV show, but. I had watched Greenberg, um, you know, the, the movie with uh, Ben Stiller uh, at, as okay, an unlikely yeah. misanthrope done by Noah Bumbach, Bumbach, the squid and the whale dude who is now separating from Jennifer Jason Lee, who's also in the movie, and co-wrote it. And uh, there's an amazing performance in there by Greta Gerwig, who I'd never heard of before. She's apparently the patron saint of the Mumblecore movies. She's been in a ton of those. She's from New York. She's written her own plays. And she's been in a number of the um, things like the, what is it, the the stuffed chair, the fluffy chair, I don't know, and, and other classics. She gives such an amazing fucking performance in Greenberg. Like, I kind of hope she gets nominated for Supporting Actress. I can't see it happening because I just can't see people watching the movie or liking the movie long enough to get through it because it's not great. It's very uncomfortable in a lot of ways. But she's so good at playing um, not your classic ditzy character, but kind of your kind of that character that's smart, but also in her 20s does things that makes you go like, why is she doing this? And she herself, part of the component of the character, is she does stuff that she doesn't really even necessarily know why she's doing it. Like, she's impulsive in a certain way that makes her seem very scattered, and yet she's also, you can tell she's like three years away from being someone that's got her their feet on the ground, but just don't yet. Yeah. You know, but is a basically sweet person. She would make, like, I, if I had, like, suddenly omniscient power in the Hollywood system, I would make a live-action live Angel in the Ape movie where Greta Gerwig played Angel, and it would be great. It would be, it would be so good. It would be her and, like, a really well-done CGI gorilla, and it would be, like, really weird and really insane, but she would, she would so keep that insane perform everything like like nailed in such a particular sense of reality that I swear to god it would fucking work I swear to you that's awesome and I cannot follow that up with what I was going to say because it seems shallow now no are you kidding <laughs> I was talking about Angel in the Ape but it can't be more shallow than that what, what, what? okay imagine if 
alternate television history here. Instead of doing Max Headroom in the 1980s, the same people did American Flag. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been awesome. You know, that that would have been awesome. Part of me really wonders, like, maybe they'll do maybe they'll do American Flag now, frankly. I think American Flag is so of its time, I don't think it'd work now. Yeah, it probably wouldn't. Um, I don't know, you know. Uh, there, there's a couple of others that I'm like, oh, man, there's, there's some books that I'm like, what's on the tip of my brain? That, um, you know, honestly, uh, I, I'm going to stick to Angel Nate. But if I think of future, if I it's, remember my TV ideas. Just like, shout it out. Uh, okay, honestly, if you put um, Danny, ah, shit, Danny McBride in Skull the Slayer, that would be fucking hilarious. I don't think anyone would do it because the 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 Skull the Slayer is too close to Land of the Lost, uh, the way they did it, so they would never revisit that in a million years. But looking to the the, I watched that trailer for Your Highness. Your Highness, yeah, yeah, and I was like. I don't know why people are complaining. That has well, apart from the fact that it wasn't quite as funny as it should be in the trailer, but I think that could be really hilarious, um, and a weirdly straight-faced version of a fantasy epic. Uh, and so, yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, like let's do like a. But I'm, you know, TV shows are like a totally different thing from movies, so it's almost cheating to to talk about it in a way. Um, I don't think that's cheating at all. What? No, what? No. Are you kidding? Uh, doesn't everyone... In fact, it might be Adam Nave himself who might be talking about how damage control always seems like a great idea for a TV yeah, show. Yeah, da- damage control is one of these things that I can't believe Marvel, Marvel hasn't already decided that they should make a TV show out. I'd much rather watch damage control than the Hulk, even with Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. 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 I, 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 think, I think damage control would be fantastic. So... Okay, last thing, but it is Sarah Coon with three different requests. What? Okay? Yes. I'll, I'll go for the second one first. A rant against drumming bunnies in film trailers. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you even know that's a, a reference to? Yes, not exactly. She mentioned it in her trailer. Is it, is it a- that James Marston movie that James Marston doesn't pop up in or something? Is it James Marston? Whoever is playing the, whoever is voicing the Easter Bunny in Hop, which is a film that's coming out next year. The trailers come out and it's um, literally just the rabbits playing the drums along with Song 2 by Blur. (laughs) Okay. Uh, That's really funny. Right. So you had mentioned the fact that you you had commented on the fact that it was an outdated uh, trailer. Yeah, it's Song 2 by Blur, because Song, song two. 2 by Blur is 13 years old. Yes. I love Blur with a ridiculous passion, but Song 2, first of all, wore out of its, wore out its welcome maybe six months after it was released, and 2, the song's 13 years old. Seriously, okay. you're telling me no other song with good drumming has happened in the last 13 years? Let, let me tell you a little, little factoid, Graham, that Song 2 by Blur is like the Coke jingle for a certain generation. It's been oh, used it, it, to sell us movies. Yeah, like, oh, oh, I know, I know. Radiator it. fluid, like chewing gum. Like seriously, you hear that? I know. God bless Damon for making money he can from it, I guess. But yeah, I, I that song wherever is welcome. Like before the advertising blitz for me, and right. it's very sad because I remember getting the album before it came out. I remember buying it at a, a record fair from a, a used record stack. Mm-hmm. Someone had a promo copy of the album before it came out. 
And I remember like hearing songs just the first time being like, this is fucking awesome. And not realizing like six months later, I'd be like, no, no, it's not. Please go away, song two. Yeah. I wish you'd never existed. And, and then at that point, you're screwed. Because then yeah, suddenly, exactly. I, I think Starship Troopers used it in their trailer, and then it was fucking everywhere. Same way that, like, I Feel Good by James Brown was in every movie trailer for, like, a five-year period. Yeah, it was really weird, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, You're Unbelievable by, is that Jesus Jones or is that EMF? No, that's, or... that's EMF. Okay, uh, by EMF hey, was in why every I, Why I argue that they are, they're easy to mix up? EMF and Jesus Jones very different bands. I I totally that's why I checked because I used to think it was Jesus Jones and I believe I remember some rant where you went on and on about EMF and I I believe I've written in my blog about my love for Jesus Jones <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not being ironic I actually really like Jesus Jones sometimes um, EMF of course which stood for XC motherfuckers and I I I've told you my favorite EMF fact ever right uh no I don't it's think the name of their follow up single to Unbelievable is i believe (laughs) (laughs) it's so great they're like okay that worked for us last time i believe no one will no one will make a connection yeah yeah exactly they'll never catch on uh okay so that's one of our three questions hopefully the other two are less in jokey for the rest of our listeners one of them really actually neither of them are (laughs) (laughs) the next one is horrifically jokey a debate over whose glasses are better Mm. I would say yours are, or are we talking about Sarah's? Because Sarah's might be better than both of ours. But um, I really don't know who, who's. I'm going to say the minor anyway. Yeah, I think I, I think sadly uh, you've not even seen my new glasses, which are <laughs> fucking awesome. Oh no, I was even going off your old ones, which were incredibly awesome. So yes, in that case, winner. I'm, 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 I'm currently I'm currently rocking uh, a sort of updated Mad Men vibe. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is awesome. I'm actually rocking the uh, the Revenge of the Nerds style, like something's taped and like half of it's dangling off my ear style. The I should have gotten a new pair of frames like six months ago style. Uh, I'd like to point out that I said I'm rocking and vibe and you didn't laugh at me once, which is kind of stunning. Um... Well, because honestly, I thought you were being serious again. So I'm like, <laughs> let him have that. You know, Hi, I'm Scottish. Maybe. <laughs> Um, the last thing Sarah asks for is a top 10 about how Lauren Davis is awesome. Oh my God. Absolutely. So awesome. Um, this, this is ultimate, like, this is supremely unjoking. Um, listeners, Lauren Davis is a friend of ours who lives in San Francisco. Um, she used to write for, or rather she still writes for I-9, but when I worked at I-9, that's how I got to know her. Um, Jeff, I think you met her through me, maybe? Yeah, exactly. You introduced us at Comic-Con at San Diego like two years ago um, and she is completely awesome there, there is I think it's impossible to meet Lauren without completely just thinking she's the bee's knees um, okay top 10 let's see she is ridiculously capable in a sense that I am not and so when she says something like I've come up with a great idea for a comic book anthology about the mission district she really makes it happen to the point where it's going to be published and has an ISBN number and everything which astounds me I've seen some pages from it, too, and they look fantastic. So let's call that number two. Um, hmm. Number, number three, three. Number great three. dog. I, I, okay, number four in that case. She is really, 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 really ridiculously funny. Yes. In a, in a really dry way that you don't 
initially realize and then you're like, ah, you are yeah. much funnier than I am. Yeah. Number I five? Agree. Mm-hmm. Number five, Jeff? Oh, I have to come up with number five. Okay, yeah. the dry wit is great. Number uh, five, she is both incredibly well-read and incredibly generous with her knowledge about what she's well-read. Like, she's great at recommending things in a way that is not um, sort of pushy or uh, elitist. Number six, on the off chance she hears this, she will be completely mortified. Oh, yeah, so (laughs) mortified. Like, number seven is the way that she actually blushes when she is mortified is actually pretty great. Uh, Number eight, we should mention her website, uh, Storming the Towers. Is that what it's called? I want to say Storming the Castle, but Storming the Tower might be it. I might be uh, Let me see here. Storming the... Uh, yeah. Uh, wait, hold on. Is it... It is. StormingTheTower.com, which is her uh, absurdly frequently updated website about webcomics, is really very impressive, and she's turned me on to a lot of terrific webcomics as a result. I had a number nine, and it's completely gone. Number nine, she actually returns books that you lend her, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, okay, number ten is a like a complete, and not even in joke, but just like a, a, a very internal reference. She was she initially started at I9 as an intern, and a, like there is one who like is more capable or, or insanely good as an intern in the world. Mm-hmm. She was stunning. She puts those of us who were officially working for the sites. To shame <laughs> as, as an intern, and then when she got hired on properly, she continued to put everyone who was working inside to shame. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that is uh... that's ten. And also, I uh, I honestly think she's going to be completely mortified if we leave this in. Yeah, we may take it out, but probably not because I actually it'll be worth seeing if she she actually makes it this far in. Because God knows who else would. It's been. It's been I, almost two hours. Yes, I have no idea how we're going to like chop this up, but I'm going to. Oh, just it was a big one, <laughs> dude. It's like two hours for some people. They'll be like downloading that all day. I well, hey, the um, I've completely forgotten the name of Chad Nevis' podcast. Oh, Splash page. Splash page is like three hours these days. Wow. See, but is this a good trend? I don't know. I mean, I I sort of like I appreciate the fact that our listeners have sort of uh. You Stuck know, with this. Yeah, but I also like the idea of having short, shorter podcasts so that people can, in theory, jump in or start listening or kind of get, join in on the action. Because honestly, the idea of sitting down for a three-hour podcast is kind of daunting, uh, even as I, I, is... Well, yes, it, it's, it's true. <laughs> I really don't know how you find the time to, to listen to them unless you I, do the I, unthinkable thing of listening to them while you write all the content that you generate. No, I generally listen to it while I do other things. Like, so, you know, while I'm doing dishes or while I'm doing laundry or something, I will listen to it. And it generally takes me a few days to get through something like a three-hour podcast. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, it's amazing. I really need to schedule more time with it because there's so many great people. Um, I was super excited that I finally got followed by Paul O'Brien from House to Astonish today on Twitter. I, like, followed him, like, I don't know, like, 
oh, I think I tried following him like eight months ago and he never followed me back and I felt dejected and unfollowed him. He just started following me today. He'll probably have stopped by the time we stop recording this and exactly. post it. But He'll have heard that we have recorded it to our podcast and he'll be like, nah. Nope, not for me. And I'm going to unfollow these people. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I was quite happy about that because I think Paul O'Brien and Al uh, at House Two Stoners yeah. are doing wonderful, wonderful work. So they're great. They're dreamy. Um, okay, well, uh, so I, I think that uh, pretty much polishes that off, good lord. Unless you have anything else you'd like to add? No, 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 that that really is it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good job. I only saw the, the questions that were directed to both of us, so I was looking, I'm like, oh, we've only got six questions. This will be short. And wow, we had a whole bunch of them. Yeah, we had, them. we had a lot more. Mm-hmm. I also, I should apologize to everyone who does follow me on Twitter because I asked like three times. I kept on reposting. I kind of thought that was good though. I saw, And I reposted once as well. So I, I tried not to do, re, overdo it. But um, thank you for everybody. And uh, again, if you like us, let us know on iTunes. And people who are listening to us who want to follow us on Twitter, I'm Lazy Bastard, uh, L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. And, and my accent is so bad, you should spell it mine. Yes, and Grams is Gram M G R A E M E M, and that's M is in Marvel Man in both cases. <laughs> yes, it is just like Marvel Man. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> hmm, Gram McMarvel Man. Huh? You know, it's not as catchy as Gram McMillions, I have to say. Which... <laughs> oh God, stop it! I just wish you would run with that because everyone who hears it likes it. I think you could like seriously run with that, man. You know, I introduced that skate this week, and she's like, "That's really funny," and I was like, "Fuck you." Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, Kate just started listening to the podcasts. Oh, has she? Oh, good. Uh, it, she. I think this is hilarious. She has no interest. In, well, she has some interest in comics, but not enough to listen to a comic-related podcast. But just finds it funny the way that you and I uh, give each other shit, as she says, in the friendliest of ways. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad that's still uh, true to those people who listen, because there are times where I'm like, we've gotten a little more contentious lately. Hopefully that's not a problem. But uh, Have we? I don't know. I, I sort of thought so. I thought that I thought the other week there was something where we, well, because we disagreed on Alan Moore. We talked about Matt. By the time we talked about Matt Fraction, we actually ended up flipping and disagreeing on him again. Uh, but but in different in the different way from what you were flipping on Moore, which was fun. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of fascinating watching the ways in which we've gone head to head on some of the things. Hopefully, I think you know, considering we've gotten some good feedback on it. Uh, but I'm sort of like, but I also enjoy the the, the, the kidding around laughing part. So as long as that works for, for the outside listener, then we're set. And really, it's all about you, dear listener. <laughs> it is. And by you, dear listener, we mean Kate. <laughs> exactly. Hi, Kate. <laughs>